1 Samuel chapter 12. So, the reign of King Saul has just been ratified by all of the people. And so where we pick up here in chapter 12, uh, your Bible might say, like mine does, Samuel's farewell address, but that would imply that Samuel is going somewhere, and he'll actually be very present for the rest of the book. The transition here, though, is the transition from the days of the judges to the beginning of the monarchy. In other words, the role he's surrendering here is not his role as prophet, not his role uh, as a Levite, uh, but specifically the role of judge. Just like in the book of Judges with men like Samson and Gideon and Barak, uh, Samuel had a role in leading Israel. And uh, now, with the beginning of the monarchy, that role is coming to an end. As he does so, he gives Israel one last clear picture of the sinfulness of their request for a king. But he's also concerned here uh, to show that he stands uh, blameless in his ministry. Now, there's, um, there's something to be said about uh, pondering the, the value of, of this for us. Like I said, it's not rightly a farewell address, but it is in some sense a retirement, okay? He's going to continue to serve the people by serving the kitten. He's going to continue to be a mouthpiece for the Lord, uh, but there is a sense where it's like a retirement, and uh, it's interesting to me um, to, to think of it through that lens, but let's look at it together in verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I've obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Reflect with me for a second on the longevity of Samuel's ministry. Remember that he was dedicated by his mom to the service of the Lord as a Nazarite in the temple. And so at the young age of barely weaned, maybe as young as three, Samuel enters into public ministry, both before the Lord and for the people. And he's now quite elderly. He's gone gray. And the whole time, he's lived his life publicly before the people. And so he says here in verse 3, Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed, the king. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Samuel recognizes that with his position of power comes the danger of corruption. And so publicly, he presents himself and he says, can any of you lay claim on corruption in the job that I have done? Where have I taken more than what I was owed? Where have I defrauded someone? Who have I taken advantage of? Or when have I taken a bribe? He just opens himself up publicly. Okay? I think significantly, one of the reasons Samuel does this is not, not merely out of some sort of sensitivity. It's not like he's still a little bit hurt 
by his rejection. I don't think that's a very good way to read this. I think a better way to read it is that he's clearly here an example of faithful leadership. And no doubt over the course of Israel's history, even in this generation, they're going to have opportunity to reflect and compare their present circumstances with the standard that Samuel has set up. He's done a good job and he's publicly able to basically say, anyone who can lay a claim against me, go ahead. But notice how they respond in verse 4. They said collectively, you've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witnessed against you and his anointed is witness today that you've not found anything in my hand. And he said, they, uh, they said, he is witness. Okay. And so it's got almost this kind of legal procession sense to it, uh, where here it's ratified. His, his reputation here is permanently labeled uh, and, and publicly closed. Verse six, Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. And so he reminds them here that the Lord who's witnessing all of this public day here is the same Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, just like he appointed Samuel just like he's now appointed Saul, just like he'll eventually appoint David, okay? God has consistently raised up men to serve him in this capacity of leadership. And here, what we get in what follows in this transition uh, is effectively the longest recorded words publicly of Samuel. And he takes this opportunity to exhort the people of Israel. And so he says, let me plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. And he begins to retell their history. Verse eight, when Jacob went into Egypt and the fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and they made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hands of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We've sinned because we've forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and Ashtoreth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel, he refers there to himself, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. Now, notice here what he's doing. He walks back through the history of the judges, the most recent period of time. He also referenced God raising up Moses and Aaron during the wilderness period. But what he's pointing out here is that the fate of Israel hasn't been in the hands of the leadership, but in their faithfulness. Right? And so they had these leaders, but the people turned away from God. They cried out to God, and God sent them leaders, but it's clear that God is the great deliverer, that it wasn't by the hand of Moses they were brought out of Egypt, but by the hand of God, and that ultimately, although God used men like Jerubbabel, which is Gideon, or Barak, or even Jephthah, they really couldn't take the credit, nor could they claim extensively good character. But God was faithful 
to deliver them. In verse 12, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. He says, you've misunderstood all of your history. Your failures are your own, and the deliverances are of God. And so here he's pointing out, what does he say here? No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. You may remember when they initially came and asked for a king, God spoke to Samuel and he said, don't feel bad, Samuel, because they've not rejected you, they've rejected me. Okay. Samuel's kind of pushing that same thing here and he's saying, you need to understand that you've missed the point of your own history, that you've misunderstood who it is who brings about victory, where the danger is. Not even here, he doesn't even put the danger in their enemies, the Philistines, the Moabites. God was faithful to deliver all those into the hands of Israel. Their real enemy has been themselves. And so notice verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Where's the secret of victory here? Not in having a king, but in obeying the Lord. Okay? This is what he's emphasizing to them. And so he says in verse 16, Now therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? And so he says, okay, so that you know I speak for God. So you know the truth of what I'm saying. God is going to show up today and he says, you all recognize the fact that it's the wheat harvest, okay? So effectively, that's May, June. In Israel, that's the dry season, the middle of their summer, okay? And so he says in verse 16 or 17, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you've done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So there's this sign done for the people. It rains when it should not rain. It's the dry season. In fact, during the wheat harvest, for rain to fall is very dangerous because the heads of wheat are already exposed, and the, uh, the rain can hinder uh, or even destroy uh, a good crop. And so this sign is done to show them, and the people are struck by it. They know that it's out of season, and also here, not only is it out of season, but it's instantly in response to the word of Samuel. Verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we've added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. I would call this a relatively effective sermon, right? He, that's the point he wants to get across. This was a mistake. And they get the point and they say, please pray for us so that we will not die. And Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things, those are idols, that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his name's great sake, for his great name's sake, excuse me, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. And so he basically says, God's real. His power is real. Your sin is real. 
but don't forget the fact that God is the one who set this whole Israel thing up. Don't forget the fact that it's God who has called you by his name for his sake. And then he says, on top of that, you asked me to pray for you, verse 23, moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. He basically says, I may be stepping out of a significant public ministry of judging, but he says, far be it from me to not continue to minister by praying for you as a people. He basically says, you don't have to ask me to pray for you. That's my job. One of the things that I think is significant about this in in terms of thinking through retirement uh, is that it's not a transition here in Samuel's ministry to inactivity. In fact, like I said, he's going to continue to have a significantly important role alongside the kings speaking for God as a prophet. A role that's so important it will continue past Samuel's life and we'll have other prophets like Nathan and Elijah and Elisha, uh, all of whom kind of fulfill this same role. But on top of that, notice here that his ministry changes, but it doesn't end. Our movement of Calvary Chapel um, started in the 70s, and so right now, many of the men who planted churches in the early days of our movement are now transitioning. They're coming into their old age and they're recognizing that it's the season to raise up and replace themselves in the ministry. Sometimes that looks like taking a step back to a particular facet of ministry. Uh, Sometimes it looks like going on and being freed up to do other things. Um, Sometimes it looks like more traditional forms of retirement. On top of that, our movement has not always been good at planning for the future. It's almost built into just the excitement that was the Jesus movement and the expectation that Jesus was going to return and these types of things. Um, But in contrast to that, there's this American cultural standard that retirement is the end game. It's the goal. It's why you work. It's what you do. Um, Despite the fact that nothing kills people quicker than retirement, statistically. That people in their old age who maintain some sort of employment tend to live longer than those who retire. For the Christian, though, we need to recognize uh, that our work is not done until God ends it in our death or the return of Jesus, whichever comes first. And so that means that there will be changes in our roles. And that's better, a better way to think than being the ending of our roles. Uh, I think a good example of this is parenting. If you're a parent of a child, that's a significant aspect, facet of your life. It's an important thing. When your children are raised, that doesn't end your usefulness, even to your kids, let alone to the rest of humanity. Uh, It's now something that we often struggle with, but the role of parent maintains, right? When you hit, hit 18, your father doesn't lose the role of father, but there's clearly a significantly different role of father of a child and father of an adult okay and it's the same way with Samuel he looks at the ministry and one of the things that I love here is even though he's losing the public face of his ministry the private reality of his prayer closet that maintains he sees it as significant in fact he sees it as a requirement something that God has called him to I think that's worth saying because for many of us if it's not out front, it doesn't matter. If it's not visible, it's not important. Samuel's going to take, once again, a significant step back. 
but he sees and recognizes the value of the work he's going to continue to do, especially in prayer. And let me remind you that significantly in the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel's prayers are effective. James tells us that the effective prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. And that was true of Samuel. It's just demonstrated in this fact that he calls on God to provide a sign, and he does. But it's also Samuel who prays that God would speak, and he does. And it's Samuel who prays that God would bring victory, and he does. He sees prayer as being a significant calling, um, one that he is now freed up for in a greater way. On top of that, he says, I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Now, that's just Samuel's role as being from the tribe of Levi. He says, that I'm going to continue in. I still have a role in teaching and speaking for God and opening the book of Moses and laying out the meaning for the people. And then he gives them one last exhortation in verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so he gives him a couple of exhortations here. Fear the Lord. Okay, now, biblically, fear clearly involves reaction. It involves emotions. Sometimes it involves shaking or falling down on your face uh, or, or, you know, an overwhelming experience. Sometimes it doesn't. What's more important to the idea of fearing the Lord is that he is a constant point of reference in your thinking. That the thing that matters most in your decision making is what God thinks of it. So he says, fear the Lord, and then he says, serve him faithfully with all of your heart. And then finally he says, consider what great things he has done for you. I would argue that that last one is the um, the prerequisite for the others. That it's in considering what God has done for us that we are inspired both to the relevance that God has in our life, fearing the Lord, as well as the response of serving him with all our hearts. In other words, one of the mistakes that Israel has made throughout their history, and these are the words of Samuel just a few verses earlier, is that they've forgotten the Lord. And so he says, instead, consider, retell yourself the stories, remind yourself, repeat, meditate on who God is and what he has done for you. And then he warns them, he gives them an exhortation and then a warning, if you do still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And unfortunately, we know that that has a prophetic undertone, that that's exactly what happens. And the flood's name is Babylon. After years and years of them continuing to do wickedly, um, not only are the people of Israel removed, but so are their kings. So that kind of closes the time of the judges, this period between Joshua and Saul. And chapter 13 really gets us into the reign of Saul proper. But as we'll see tonight, the author is selective in the stories he tells. He really only has three he wants to tell us tonight, and then David's going to be introduced, and then God's already working and moving towards something new. Um, and so here, the selectivity is clearly to paint Saul in a particular light, to highlight enough to give us a sense of his character. 
And so chapter 13 begins with a relatively normal introduction to the reign of kings throughout the Bible. However, it's missing something. Uh, if you have the ESV like I do, it says Saul was dot, dot, dot years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 and two years over Israel. Okay? The reason is because in not only the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, that predates the life of Jesus by a couple hundred years, not only in that, but in the Masoretic texts, which are the kind of uh, long-lasting line of Hebrew texts, that we follow, uh, this information just isn't here. There's a, there's a missing number in the first category, in the second one it just says two. And so if you read it the way that it sounds, a literal reading of what we have would be Saul was one years old and he reigned for two years, okay? We know that's not the case. We, we don't know why the text says it this way. Now, if you have uh, the Coleman Standard, for example, it's gonna say Saul was 30 years old and he reigned for, I don't remember what it says, but they're pulling that 30 not out of any manuscript we have. They're just taking an educated guess and filling in the blank. When we go why, we don't really know. And it's everything from when you know this was originally being archived, it was left blank, so you could fact check later. I know not many of us are writers, but can you imagine writing a book and you got the juices flowing and you're like, oh, I don't actually know what that fact is, and so you leave it blank, like a Mad Lib, to be filled in later. That seems very unlikely to me, um, but we really don't have any good answers for this. In terms of how long Saul's uh, reign was, we have a pretty good feeling for it, not only as we watch the life of David and Saul in the book to follow, but in Acts chapter 13, verse 21, when Paul is telling the story of Israel's history, he says that Saul became king and reigned for 40 years, okay? And so it may even say in the CSB uh, and in other translations, and he reigned for 42 years old over Israel, and that's where they're drawing that from. Um, but either way, uh, some even try and translate this, although, once again, it'd be really rough Hebrew to do this. Saul had reigned for one year, and when he reigned for two years, as if it's just introducing the story we have here. I don't have any answers for you. I don't really know. It's not actually the only place where we're missing these particular numbers in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we'll encounter it again uh, in Kings or Chronicles. But nonetheless, it sets up here the ministry or the, the rule of Saul, um, but it's a little bit cryptic to us today. Verse two, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and that all Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. So Saul sets up a military operation here. He splits the party into two parties. Uh, he has 3,000 men, 2,000 he takes to himself, 1,000 he sends with Jonathan, and they set up in two different places. And Jonathan has a significant victory uh, overthrowing a garrison, right? A stationing of soldiers, a small military outpost of the Philistines at Geba. And so 
Here, Saul, uh, if you will, toots his own horn and begins to proclaim this victory. But notice we're told something a little bit weird. Verse 4, all of Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Now, that's not actually inappropriate way of talking. You know, if Jonathan is his first in command, but he is commander-in-chief, this is his military expression. It doesn't matter who the general was on the front lines. But when we read it back-to-back like this, it does make us wonder, right? It seems like he doesn't publicly praise Jonathan for this victory. He just takes the credit himself. There's clearly a juxtaposition the author wants us to get in these next few chapters between Saul and Jonathan. But for now, we'll just leave it on the table. But because of this victory, because they have the inroad, the beginning uh, you know, of a military exploit, he summons more people to his side. Okay? He knows the Philistines are kind of upset that they've taken this ground, and it's, it's all or nothing now. Right? The Philistines are going to start to gather, so he needs to gather his forces, which is what happens. Verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troop, like the sand on the seashore and the multitude. Okay? And so the response here, almost every commentator agrees, must be literally everything the Philistines have at their disposal. Okay? Uh, Solomon himself has 1,400 chariots personally 30,000 or your um, your bible may say 3,000 either one of those is a huge force of the upper crust of military technology at the time okay Israel has zero chariots okay on top of that it says not only are there all these chariots but then there's a infantry that's innumerable in size compared to what Saul has which is just 3,000 and so any way you play the numbers, uh, Saul is out of his depth, okay? And so what happens is they camp, they came up and encamp at Michmash to the east of Beth Haven when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and in cisterns. And so his soldiers look around at this, they go, we are completely outgunned and they're just completely demoralized. They don't even go home, they go into hiding. In fact, listen to the list of places they choose to hide. Caves, holes, rocks, tombs, and cisterns. Okay, literally anything they can find where you can't see a human being. They find a well and they just jump into it, right? They find a tomb where the dead are laid. Remember, these are Hebrews. Death is something you keep at a distance. It makes you ritually unclean. This is dire straits territory, okay? Now think of what that means for Saul as he looks around and Israel itself, his army is just melting before him. He's already terribly outmatched. And it says on top of that, verse 7, some Hebrews crossed the fords of Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. In other words, some of them just leave Israel entirely. They go across the Jordan into the Transjordan area where the two and a half tribes had settled. They just, they're not even in the land anymore, okay? But we see here, Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Okay, and so he has this marginal force, but they're demoralized as well. They're hanging on, but barely. Now it says in verse 8, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. If you go back to the book of Leviticus, before a military engagement, 
one where all the armies of Israel were summoned, like this type of thing, uh, there was always supposed to be a sacrifice first. And so Saul uh, has, has let Samuel know, he says, I'll be there in seven days, and now the clock is ticking down. But notice what happens while he's waiting. Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering for him. Okay, and so here, the Philistines are all encamped, and his numbers are decreasing day after day. Samuel still hasn't come. Day five, he's not here. Day six, he's not here. Day seven at noon, he's still not here. Okay, so, verse nine, Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. Okay, that was not his place. It wasn't something he was supposed to do. He wasn't qualified to offer the sacrifice without Samuel. Now, it may be that he even has priests present, and it doesn't mean that he here cut the animal and put it on the altar himself. That, I would almost say, would be a much more serious charge. But Samuel is God's mouthpiece. Samuel says, wait till I arrive. I will offer the sacrifice, and Saul does not. Now, what does that show us about Saul? that right now in these circumstances, his biggest concern is this overwhelming reality of the Philistine army and his decreasing military forces. And that ranks higher than obeying God's word. What we have here effectively, even if it's understandably so, is a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust. He thinks it's now or never. And then ironically, thinks that his disobedient operation here will somehow do what's necessary to get God on his side. One of the things we're going to see about tonight is that Saul is religious in all the wrong places. He always emphasizes the wrong thing. He's always in the wrong place, uh, thinking about things the wrong way. And so here, he's disobedient and he's disobedient in an act of worship. And then notice here, verse 10, as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Notice two things there. First, if he just waited a little bit longer, you see, the, the thing we have to understand is in the big picture here, God is totally in control. He knows about the Philistine forces. He knows about the declining number of Israel, even if he is, as we'll find out here, down to 600 men. The armies of Gideon was only 300, and God had plenty to work with then, right? It's not about the numbers. It's about faith. It's about trusting that God will fight for them. It's about obedience. And the second thing I want you to notice is, as soon as he hears Samuel is coming, what does he do? He rushes out to say hello. I mean, don't, don't you see how tone deaf this is? He says it ran out, he ran out to meet him and greet him. Now, I think there's two different ways to read that. One is an intentional cover-up. He, he just wants to get the first word in, right? We'll see this pattern later in Saul. But at the very least here, he doesn't value the significance of the misstep he just took. And so he's just like, oh, great, Samuel's here. I can't wait to tell him. I already got started. I mean, how do we imagine this conversation going? But either way, he runs up to Samuel. And so, Samuel said, what have you done? 
And Saul said, well, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come in the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, do you hear where that is? All of the causes of his decision are external. Well, it's because the Philistines are encamped. It's because my men are retreating and you didn't, you didn't show up on time, Samuel. He takes no personal ownership for his decision. In fact, notice what he says next. Verse 12, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. The, even when it comes to his own action, he sees it here not merely as reluctant, but as impersonal. I forced myself. It's a, it's a weird phrasing, is it not? I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. Now, remember, we're reading in the Bible, and so we need to think of what the word fool means here. It doesn't just mean stupid move, Saul. What does Proverbs say about the fool? A fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What he's done here doesn't align with a true belief in God at all. It doesn't make any sense. He's going through the motions of religion, offering a sacrifice, but the way that he's doing it is directly against the grain of obedience. That's what he means when he says, you've done foolishly here. He says, you're, you're operating uh, without a true recognition of God. Samuel had just called the people to fear the Lord. Saul doesn't have that sense. He wants to get God on his side. He sees God as one that you can manipulate by going through the motions. But as one who wouldn't be disturbed by your own disobedience, Samuel continues, You've not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. He says this is a significant misstep. This is so serious, Saul, that your son or your son's son or their descendants, there will be no dynasty. They will not reign after you. You will be the last of the sons of Kish to reign on the throne. He says, the Lord has sought a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord had commanded you. You see, the only way a monarchy was to work in Israel was more like a theocracy. Okay? Now, sometimes the word theocracy is used of uh, the ruling of, of the government of Israel apart from a king. So, they had a theocracy, now they have a monarchy and that's bad. I would say that's a misunderstanding of what a theocracy is. Okay. God, all the way back to Genesis, has been looking for a man to rule for him. It begins with Adam and Eve, collectively given dominion, right? That's where it starts. And the story ends with a man reigning. Think of the book of Daniel. As Daniel sees this vision of throne set up in the ancient of days and one like a son of man, a human being, who receives all of the authority. We wind forward and we find that it's Jesus who's the name above every name, you know, the history of the world ends with a human being on the throne, one who happens to be the son of God. But the problem here is the way that a theocracy works, which is God speaks to the king and the king obeys. This is, this is the sole link in the chain of how monarchy would work in Israel and Saul has broken it and so he says I'm turning to another 
I've already got him in mind, a man after my own heart. And so, verse 15, Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him that stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines, excuse me, let me reread verse 16 in a way that actually makes sense. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Now, if you're curious what that means, it means two miles. That's what it means. 600 men, two generals, 30,000 chariots, two miles away. That's the setting that we're in now. And so, verse 17, raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah, to the land of Shal. Another company turns towards Beth Horon. And another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim towards the wilderness. Here's what this means if you're not looking at a map. They head out in the three directions that Saul is not to cut off reinforcements. In fact, northern Israel isn't represented at all, and they lock down the main road, okay? So all Saul is going to get is 600 men, okay? Verse 19, on top of that, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. Remember, the Philistines have been a present oppressor in the land of Israel for generations now. And one of the things that made the Philistines significantly advanced militarily, what they brought with them when they came into the land of Canaan, was an Iron Age mentality. That's where the chariots come from, okay? And so they come, they have the tools and the technology, metallurgy is what it's called, to make weapons, iron weapons. And they make sure that Israel doesn't have access to that. Okay, they, they monopolize the market. They don't allow any blacksmithing um, in their subservient Israel people. And so what does that mean? It means in verse 20, but every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, or his sickle. And so even just to keep a fine edge on their farming tools, they had to travel and go to the Philistines and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. Uh, that probably doesn't mean a lot to you, uh, but it's, it's overpriced, as you would expect with a monopoly. And so not only do they control to make sure there's no weapons, but they also are making sure just so they can survive as farmers that they're paying out the nose. So, on the day of battle, verse 22, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hands of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. Okay? And so there's two weapons for the 600 men. The rest of them have farming tools at best. In fact, if you remember back to the days of judges, and you remember the, the judge whose name is Shagmar. Shagmar kills 600 Philistines with what? With an ox goad. Not because that was his tool of choice, like some, you know, eccentric comic book hero. That's all he had, okay? And so here, not only are they outnumbered, not only are all of the possibilities of reinforcements cut off, but also, technologically, this is, you know, this is farmers versus soldiers. This is uh, sickles and plowshares and axes versus 
iron swords and spears. And the only exception is Saul and Jonathan. Okay. And then verse 23, the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Okay, things are getting closer. Now, notice here, the story moves forward and it tells a story about Jonathan and it's important to read these two chapters together. I want you to notice here the intentionally drawn out differences between Jonathan and Saul. 14 verse 1. One day, Jonathan the son of Saul said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah at the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Atab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas. Okay, so Samuel's not present. And so he reaches into the already abandoned household of Eli for spiritual support. That's what he has. Uh, on top of that, it says here uh, that he was wearing an ephod and people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So he's here just in waiting and Jonathan says, let's go, let's go do a little bit of a covert operation. Let's, let's spy out. Let's see what's going on. Verse 14, um, sorry, verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. Now, we don't know what Bozes means, but Senna means thornbush, okay? And so the idea here is that he's walking in a path, and he's down beneath where all of the soldiers are. And on one side is a craggy cliff, and on the other side is a craggy cliff, maybe one that's covered in blackberry bushes, to use a Northwest equivalent, okay? Um, the point is here is that they're below the army. The battle would be uphill. Now, if you never thought about this before, if you're in battle, even if it's just a duel, higher ground is ideal, okay? Because you can lean over and dominate and control the territory from higher ground. When you add to this projectiles, I'm going to say obviously so, okay? It's shooting uphill is more difficult. On top of that, um, some have pointed out, because this is so specific, that it also, because of where the sun would have been in the sky, it also removes the entire possibility of there being any shade, okay? This is a completely exposed uh, cliffside. And so it says on verse five, the one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Okay. Saul is so upset by his declining numbers that he disobeys the Lord. Jonathan goes out with a friend and goes, this is enough. God doesn't need any more than two people. God can save by the many or the few. His faith is true, it's real, it's living, and it's in perfect contrast to his father. And so uh, notice verse 7, his armor bearer said to him, do all that's into your, in your heart, do as you wish. He says, I'm on board. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we'll not go to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. 
okay? And so get the idea here. Not only uh, is there only two of them, but this isn't going to be a surprise attack. They're going to just walk out into the open and wave, okay? And what he says is, let's see how they respond to that. If they say, hey, you, stop, and then they come down the hill to us, then we're just going to stand our ground. He says, but if they say, come up here and fight us, then it's clear God is in this. Now, once again, the option of God's leading here is not the easy option. We would expect him to say, if they come down to us, if they give up their high ground and make their way to us, then God is in this, right? If God makes our enemies foolish, then, then he's clearly working here. No, he's, he says the opposite. If they invite us, to come up and fight them, which in this sense, militaristically, can't be anything less than a goad, okay? In fact, we're going to see that what come up and fight looks like is them crawling up this crag, okay? Does that seem like safe military posture to be on hands and knees moving up a mountain? But this is still what Jonathan sets up before him for this, and so let's look at what happens. He says, verse 11, both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. Okay, mocking. Verse 12, and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. I don't know a more machismo statement than that. Let us show you something, right? They are set to just destroy these two young soldiers. Uh, and so Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him and they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. Okay, and so, so David, or excuse me, Jonathan just comes rushing up this mountain on hands and feet and he just lunges and he knocks the two over and then his armor bearer comes behind him and kills them both. And this is, uh, not the end of it. Notice what happens next. Verse 14, and that first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length and an acre of land. Uh, in other words, there's a whole group of men around and they just wipe them out almost instantly. Okay. Verse 15, and there was a panic in the camp, in the field, among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Okay, so first they're just shocked by this surprise attack. Then they're shocked by the fact that it's just two men who have taken down 20, 10 apiece, if you will. And then on top of that, God does something miraculous and there's an earthquake and now they're overwhelmed. One of the things I think we forget when we read uh, the Bible uh, in these military passages is that all societies in those days saw a direct relationship between their gods and their military victories, okay? Part of the reason this is such a shaking thing is because it seems like their gods aren't in it, right? Here, just two men have taken out 20 of their soldiers and then there's an earthquake. It, everything is pointing to being a bad portent for the war. They, they lose all of their confidence here. And so, this happens and it causes the entire army to just start to chaotically shout. And so it's loud enough that back at Saul's camp, he hears what's going on. Verse 16, the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. That probably means that the battle was surging back and forth. 
okay? Now, that should be a surprising statement to us reading uh, because one side of the battle is two men. We're going to see why that is in just a second. But he looks, and it's like the, the armies are already fighting. It's like the war has already begun. But all of his soldiers sitting next to him, he's very confused. And so, 17, Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who's gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Okay, everyone's accounted for except for two. Jonathan and his armor bearer, verse 18. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Okay, that's standard practice of warfare. So he says, go and get the ark. And the goal here, the reason he wants the ark to be brought is because he wants to seek the Lord's opinion. And so he doesn't need the ark for that. That's not for, for, um, for God speaking, but it is the place before the Lord for the casting of lots or the using of the umim and the thummim, um, the, these um, devices that the high priest had. And so uh, he says, go get the ark. And then notice verse 19, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand, okay? In other words, here he is, he's casting lots and things are getting louder and crazier and he says, never mind, we just gotta do something, okay? Again, we see that Saul is totally willing to play by the rules, to go through the motions, unless there's something more important. And so here, he, he actually stops seeking the Lord at all so he can get to work. Notice here that he's effectively active when he should be listening. And earlier, or uh, I guess it'll be later, we'll see him listening when he should be acting. Verse 20, then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle, and behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. And so he comes down, and it's like the Philistines are fighting themselves, and then we get a little bit of clarification, verse 21. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So there were defectors. There were some Jews who had just given up fighting, and if you can't beat them, then join them, and they just enlisted in the Philistine armies, and had been working for the Philistines for a long time, and now when they see God is in it, they just turn around. Now, that is serious confusion, right? Because they're all wearing the same uniforms. It's Philistine against Philistine, but it's because many of them are actually Israelites. Likewise, verse 22, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth one of the things that the writers of scripture are consistent to do is to tell us all the details and then remind us of the most significant thing. Yes, it started by this happening with Jonathan and his armor bearer. Yes, the turncoats turn coat again and turn against the army of the Philistines. Yes, all of those who had run away hear about it and they get involved and the army swells, but don't forget where the deliverance came from. It was the Lord who delivered Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. Now that's going to become important because that's 15 miles. Okay, just keep that in mind. Verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed on that day. So Saul laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Okay, and so here, at some point in the day, 
Maybe it's while he's still sitting, while things are getting, getting involved. Maybe it's after he starts to seek the Lord and then doesn't. He makes this vow and he says, all right, no one eats until this is over. And then notice something really specific about this vow. He says, until I am avenged on my enemies. Now, we've seen vows before, and we've seen rash vows before, and this is clearly a rash vow, okay? The idea here is we will keep this vow. God will give us the victory. But intermingled in it is this selfish need for vengeance, okay? I mean, go back over the history of the last chapter. What has happened? Here's Saul's gathered, and he's just minimalized before the Philistines. As, uh, as we see Jonathan mocked, you know, oh, look, they're coming out of their holes. We can imagine what it's like. But either way here, he, he makes this vow, and it's a bad time for this type of vow. Okay. Now, there's lots of vows that we see in Scripture that involve all sorts of things. Uh, there are many vows that could have been made here, but basically, he makes a caloric vow. And he says, we're going to fast on the day of battle. Okay. Now on top of that, uh, notice verse 25. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. Okay. They were afraid of the curse that Saul had laid out. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. In other words, he was refreshed. Okay? They're mid-battle here. They're somewhere on the way. They've traveled 15 miles chasing this. He's getting hungry, and so he stops, and he eats some honey, and it rejuvenates him. Okay? But he didn't hear about the curse, the oath of his father. Um, and so he does this, and then one of the people, verse 28, said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become brighter because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now, the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And so there is a great victory here. And Jonathan just says, if my dad hadn't have been so foolish, how much greater would it have been if we still had all of our strength, if we could, you know, take a break for lunch and then get back at it. But instead, we've got to press all the way till evening before we can eat. What's interesting here is he says, his father has troubled the land. And that word troubled has been used twice in a military context, okay? The first time is of Achan, Remember Achan, who, when there's supposed to be a ban on all of Jericho's uh, um, goods, all of it's to be dedicated to the Lord, he holds some, he hides some, right? And because of that, 32 men die as they fight against Ai. And it said, Achan, you have troubled Israel, okay? But the other place is even more significant. You see, the other place we see a rash vow is in the book of Judges when a judge named Jephthah says, God, if you give me the victory, the first thing that comes out of my tent, I will sacrifice to you. And the first thing that comes out of his tent after the victory is his only daughter. And he says to her, you have troubled me this day, using this same word. Now, I think that contrast is really important because Jonathan gets it right. 
It's not Jephthah's daughter who has troubled him. It's Jephthah who made a rash vow. And here, it's not Jonathan who has troubled Israel by breaking his dad's foolish oath. It's Saul by making a foolish oath. And so Jonathan just condemns his father's action for what it is. And we're going to see that things get worse before they get better. But now that's just kind of left there, and then it moves forward. There's verse 31. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ijon, and the people were very faint. And then notice what happens, verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil and took the sheep and the oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Okay, They're so hungry... They just take the spoil of war. It says they pounce on it. It's like they're so starving, they just grab loose running away animals and they just slit its throat right there and they roast it up. But Israel was required to drain the blood sufficiently. And when they're killing them on the ground, the blood doesn't drain sufficiently. It just congeals in the meat. And so now they're not eating kosher, if you will. Okay. Now, the way that this is written... Clearly, this was still a practice in Israel. I know the time of Judges, things get way off base, but they know better than this. They're just starving. Why? Because of Saul's rash vow, and now the whole army is polluted. Now the whole army has been disobedient because of his attempted religiosity, his attempt to manipulate God with a vow. And so they eat them with the blood. Then they told Saul... Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, you've dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so he sets up a high stone so that the animals can be rightly slaughtered and the blood can you know, drain from the bodies appropriately. Um, but notice here, he sees the army as being treacherous in sinning against the Lord, but it's really his treachery. It's, it's his vow that has brought them to this place. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he built to the Lord. Usually, that's a relatively positive statement. Here, we have reason to question, right? Why does he build an altar? Because he made a dumb move. Not out of worship to the Lord, but because he put his army between literally a rock and a hard place. And so this happens, and then verse 36, okay, everybody's eaten, it's after dark. How about tomorrow we get back to it? Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. Okay, here we get a vision of what could have been. We can finish this. This can be the end of the Philistines. Today, we have the victory at hand. Let's not stop here. Let's continue. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God here. Even that, do you notice? Who is it that he consults? He says, hey, soldiers, hey, people, don't you think it's a good idea to keep going? Who doesn't he ask? He doesn't ask the Lord. When we get to David, you'll see over and over, it says, and David asked the Lord and said, shall I go up today? And the Lord said, go. In Saul, he just wants the opinion of the people. He just wants to make sure everybody's on board. And a priest speaks up and he goes, you know, we really should. We really should consult the Lord on this. Okay. 
Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, verse 37, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. So the whole day goes by without a clear answer, verse 38. And Saul said, come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it may be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. That goes right in the famous last words category, doesn't it? But what is he thinking here? Why does he take such a strong claim of him and his son's own innocence? Because it was the soldiers who ate the animals with the blood. That's what he's expecting here. He says, you've done this. If you had just waited and butchered properly, we'd be fine. Okay. And so, verse 39, for as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And then he said to all Israel, you'll be on one side, and I and Jonathan and my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do whatever seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If it's the guilt's in me or Jonathan, my son, O Lord of God of Israel, give Urim. But if the guilt's in your people of Israel, give Thummim. Okay, and so he splits them. And the priest draws out one of these stones and he draws Thummim and Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan and Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that it was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. Now that might just be submissive surrender, but it also, uh, the way it is in the Hebrew is so... Um, so concise it's basically here die that's all it says it's just two words it's so concise he may actually be be challenging this is is that it kill me you know in fact can't we hear that in modern english yeah i had a little bit of onion or you know honey so kill me right it's hard to tell what the tone is here but either way he puts it firmly at his father's feet he effectively says this is your mess you do what you need to do uh, in verse 44, Saul said, Go, God do to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. He heaps on. He says, if I don't kill you, let God kill me. That's just more rash words. He just jumps in. And the only reason that Jonathan makes it out is because the people see this as it is. Verse 45, the people said to Saul, so Jonathan die, who worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. You see, Saul's trying to play like he's the righteous one here. He didn't eat of the blood, he didn't break his own vow, and now he vows, okay, Jonathan, you need to die, you're the breaker, and they go, wait a minute, Jonathan's the one that brought the victory. He's the one who worked with God, right? And so he's stopped here. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. And so because of this whole mess, that's the end of this activity. Here we get a really good feel for the contrast between Saul and Jonathan, and we have to recognize the sadness of Saul's mistake. Right? If Saul had not disobeyed the Lord and waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, who would have been next on the throne? Jonathan. And by all, everything we know of Jonathan, he would have made a great king. He's not kept from the office because of his own character flaws, but solely the flaws of his father. You see, Israel thought that Saul would be their deliverer, 
And just like Samuel prophesied, he's their restraint. He's holding them back from good things. Verse 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever they turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. This is a summary of Saul's entire military uh, you know, escapades, and they're good. He had victory, just as God had promised. He would use Saul to deliver Israel from their enemies. And so we get a big summary of his military career here. And then we're introduced to his closest constituencies. And like many Middle Eastern monarchies, it's mostly made up of family. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michal. Most of those people will occur later in the story. That's why they're introduced here. Verse 50. And the name of Saul's wife was Anahoam, the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Okay? And so he, even the, the primary general in his army is family. It's his uncle. Verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Okay. And so the last thing we see here, and honestly, this is probably the work of a good general. He recognizes talent when he sees it. Now, why does that become important? Because who's the greatest soldier in all of Israel's history? David. And Saul's not going to know at first when he starts to see the talent of David and starts to promote him through the ranks that he's actually the one that God has called to replace him. But he's going to appreciate and bring, bring David real close, seat him at his table, right? It, one of the things that I find really striking about this story is if we reverse this story, it makes so much more sense. It's the way we would tell this story, right? Where Saul is a good king and either his son is gunning for his throne or it's, it's the exact opposite. The, the way it works here, it's, it's the opposite we would tell because Saul is effectively the, the enemy of the people because of his disobedience. Now chapter 15 gives us the last major happening in Saul's reign pre-David. And it sounds a lot like, and it's incredibly similar to what we read in chapter 13, okay? And so these two are presented here, and what happens between them? Okay, over here, sorry, I can do it for you guys. Over here, he doesn't wait for Samuel. He offers the sacrifice. He loses the dynasty. Over here, as we'll read in chapter 15, he doesn't finish off the ban and kill all the animals. In fact, he leaves King Agag alive. And because of this, he's going to lose the throne before his, before his life ends. It's already gonna take place, okay? What happens in the middle? We have Jonathan, okay? And so Jonathan is stuck in the middle in this juxtaposition of what could have been. It's this presentation of difference. It's a contrast with Saul's character it's one of the great things about reading the Bible at a faster pace like we do here is you start to see the big pictures of what the author is doing. These are not just individual selections, but they're, um, they're like a montage. They're, they're specifically selected scenes to make a point. So let's finish off in chapter 15. And Samuel said to Saul, 
The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people of Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Once again here, we see the role of the prophet. God anointed you by my hand. Now he speaks to you by my mouth. Listen to the voice of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Okay, and so devoted to destruction is this specific mode of Israel's warfare that was for the original Canaanites and then grafted into that was the Amalekites because of their behavior before Israel entered the land where they came out and attacked them when Israel asked for safe passage through the land. Okay? And so all the way back then, Moses prophesies the destruction of the Amalekites at the hand of Israel. And so now Samuel says, and he comes and he says, now's the time, Saul. This is, this is the time that God has given us to fulfill the promise to wipe out the Amalekites. And so unlike the battle against the Philistines, Everything here is to be devoted to destruction. The people, all of their goods, all of the loot, all of it is to be devoted to destruction. So, verse 4, Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. Okay, this means probably that we're moving way down the ranks of his military escapades. He has a reputation now for being a good military general. And so his armies, which are all elective, have swollen uh, to being much larger. Okay, and so verse five, Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said, to, uh, said go to the Kenites, or sorry, Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. The Kenites uh, are related to the tribes of Midian, um, remember Moses goes and he takes a wife in the land of Midian. That's where the Kenites come from. They're his extended family and they come with Israel into the land and settle alongside them. Okay, so this is a long-standing allegiance, but they're living in real close quarters to the Amalekites. So he sends a warning to them and, um, and says, get out of the way um, because you showed kindness to the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Verse 7 and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And that was just all that was despised and worthless was devoted to destruction. Okay, now one of the reasons why the ban exists, why they were to devote everything to destruction, is because this wasn't about Israel. This was about God. This was God's judgment, okay? And so yes, God promises Israel he's going to bring them into a promised land, but he also makes clear that he's going to use Israel as an instrument of judgment on the Canaanites because of their wickedness. It's the same here with the Amalekites. So there's to be no... Uh, no riches gained from this, no wealth, no benefit. This is not, um, you know, just mere tribalism. This is not um, militarism. This is not just aggressive, take advantage of people weaker than you. And the ban maintains that. But they employ it selectively, and notice how they do it. They keep anything that's of value, and they destroy anything that's not worth anything. 
He goes directly against, the, it's, it's not just that they got tired or that they accidentally let some things go. They intentionally sought to benefit from this battle. In fact, probably that's why they keep King Agag alive, uh, because he's worth money, alive. He's just a corpse dead, but maybe he can be, you know, ransomed or something like this. Then, verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Sam, Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Now, that word there for anger is very strong, and it's hard to, t- hard to tell here if Samuel's angry at Saul or just angry at the circumstances. It's very clear as we keep reading that he loves Saul that he cares for Saul deeply. In fact, it says here uh, that he cried to the Lord all night, okay? And we don't know what he's crying here, but whether it's that God would change his mind or he's just weeping before the Lord because of this, he's broken over this, okay? And so he's probably angry at Saul, but he's also angry for Saul, right? He's frustrated that Saul has made such a terrible mistake again. And so... Morning comes, verse 12, Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Okay, now Gilgal has been the center of worship throughout the story of Saul, but he stops on his way there. He stops in Carmel, and he builds some sort of monument to his victory. Also, not a good thing, not a normal thing for an Israelite king to do. Incredibly normal for the people of the land. And then, notice here the prioritizing. What comes first? Praising God for the victory or memorial? Memorial and then the worship. And so he gets to Gilgal. Um, Verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, "Blessed Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Once again there, do you see how quick, who's the first one to speak? Saul is. Just like last time. He can't wait for Samuel any longer. He does it himself, and then as soon as he's finished, he hears that Samuel's coming, and he runs out and he greets him. And here it's even stronger. He runs out and he says, praise God, I've done everything that I was commanded to do. Okay. He's a little zealous to get that out there, to get in the first word. But remember, Samuel's already been told by the Lord the whole reason he's here is to bring about judgment. And so verse 14, Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? He says, If everything's been devoted to destruction, why do I hear animals? Why is there all of this loot that is in hearing distance? You know, In verse 15, Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Notice what he does there. He blames. He says, this is what the people have done. They brought the animals. They spared them. But we did devote the rest to destruction. And one of the problems here is that Uh, Incomplete obedience is disobedience, especially with something like this. But also, we have blame here, and it seems very clear here that the author is intentionally trying to get us to recall Adam in the garden. And so think of this. Here's Adam and Eve. What role are they given? Rule and have dominion. But there's one rule. Obey this one rule, 
And if you do not do so, you will die. And not only do they disobey, but what does Adam do next? He blames. And here, thousands of years later in history, stands Saul, appointed to rule for God. And he's disobedient, and he blames. Things really haven't moved forward. There's still a problem in humanity, and it's reflected in Saul. And so he says, we've done all this, it's fine. We, these, the people, he says all these things, and then notice verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Right? That's how Samuel gets a word in edgewise. Saul is so swift to justify himself, to explain away his sin, to do all this. Samuel just says, shut up. God said something to me last night. And finally, Saul says, okay, tell me. Samuel said, verse 17, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over Israel. So the first thing he says is, don't blame the people, Saul. Who's the king? Who's the one who's supposed to be leading? Who's the one who's supposed to be making decisions? He just pushes out this whole idea of blaming anyone else. And then on top of that, he says, verse 18, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil inside of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now that is new information. We get no feeling that the reason they saved the best things here is because they were worthy of sacrifice. In fact, you may remember back in verse 9, it says that the worthless things they devoted to destruction, that was God's portion. But the best things they kept for themselves. And so Saul spins a new tale now and he says, no, 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 we, we actually brought them because we wanted to worship. This is just, we're just saving for the sacrifice here. It's all part of the celebration. He's a spin doctor. Verse 22, and Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice is in obeying the voice of the Lord. He says, will God really value and honor sacrifices in the midst of disobedience? You see, Israel needed the sacrificial system because they were sinners. But it wasn't an indulgence. It didn't justify them in their sins. And this idea that I can live the life I wanna live in complete rebellion to God as long as I pay my dues at the altar was a misunderstanding. Without obedience, the sacrifices mean nothing. And so he says, doesn't God desire more than burnt offerings and sacrifices? Obedience, it's better to sacrifice. He says, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. To actually do what you're told. To hear the word of God and respond with obedience. Verse 23, for rebellion is the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Okay. He says, rebellion here ranks with the worst sins against God, witchcraft and idolatry. In other words, he says that disobedience is an act of worship that denies the sacrifice that you're offering as well. Because who is it that Saul is worshiping here? 
there's really only two options and they're both a good fit, so I'm going to say it's a 50-50 split. One is the people. The opinion of the people sways Saul every time. It's what he's most interested in. If he were a president, he'd be constantly checking the polls. He wants to know that they think he's a good king. And that ranks higher than God thinking he's a good king. But the other one that seems really clear in the text is all, what else does Saul worship? And this goes hand in hand. Why is he so interested in his popularity? Because he worships Saul. Because Saul is most important. And so here, here it's idolatry in his disobedience because he says, my will is better than your will. My will is more important. And then he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. He says, that's it. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. Okay. What did he just say on the last round? I obeyed. He's pushed again. No, no, I did. I obeyed, but the people. And now finally he goes, okay, I've sinned. Now, he continues here. He says, I've sinned for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, that's, that's not necessarily an excuse. It can actually be the true thing here. It's, he was supposed to fear the Lord, but he fears the people more. It sounds like a solid confession, but notice the next verse. What's the next thing out of his mouth? Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He says, can we just get this over with? Please just, just forgive me. Let's go back to the way things were. Why? Consequence. Right? That's what's changed. What's the difference between I did everything the Lord asked and I've sinned? It's this statement at the end of verse 23. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, he's rejected you. And he says, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Now can I still be king? That's what he's saying here. Can we just go back to things as normal? In the New Testament, it talks about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow between true repentance and false repentance. And Saul stands in here as a textbook case of false repentance. Why is he sad about his sin? Because it's going to bring bad results in his life. Why does he want to turn from his sin? Because he wants to avoid the consequences. Now, when we hold up the sins of Saul against the sins of David, we can't necessarily say that Saul is a worse sinner, can we? I mean... David has his own roster of horrible doings. He may have been a man after God's own heart, but he sees a woman bathing at night on a rooftop. He takes her, he lies with her, despite the fact that she is not his wife, despite the fact that she is married to another man who happens to be one of his own generals, fighting out on the front lines where David should have been, although he decided to stay home. He gets her pregnant. And then to cover it up, he tries to get him to sleep with his wife close enough. Remember, there's no DNA tests. So if she can just have sex with her husband around nine months before the baby comes, everything will be fine. But it doesn't work out. He's too good of a guy for that. And so he has him killed. He says when he's on the front line, he says this to his, front, his, his main general. He says, put him right on the front line and in the heat of the battle, have everybody retreat but him. Leave him completely vulnerable and standing there and he's killed. And then he just quietly takes Bathsheba as, as his own wife so that the kid can be legitimately his. It's not till Nathan finds him out. But da David says the same thing. I've sinned. 
right? In fact, David shows the same type of resistance, not to Nathan's words, but Nathan's smart enough to take a side door in and says, let me tell you a story, David, right? With David, there's also consequences. He doesn't lose the kingdom, but he does lose the child. But if you look at the way that he handles it, and if you read Psalm 51, what is the greatest pain in David's life? Is it the loss of the child? Clearly, clearly that's a horrible pain. No, he sees his sin for what it is, as a rebellion against the God he loves and who has loved him faithfully. It's not that Saul is a worse sinner than David. He's just not truly repentant. In fact, notice here, he says, come and worship with me. Verse 26, and Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. Word for word what he just said. He reiterates it. Verse 27, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore so he turns to walk away, and Saul tries to stop him. He falls to his knees, and he grabs his rope, uh, his robe. You know, it's a sign of deep pain and contri- contrition. And the robe tears in his hands. Verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And he says, Just like you tore my robe, so God has ripped the kingdom out of your hand. Verse 29, And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Now, it's interesting here because that's the same word that was used earlier when God speaks to Samuel and says, I regret that I've put Saul as king. Clearly here it's being used in two different senses. The idea here is uh, that there is no turning back from this, that there is no reversal of judgment. Now, it's worth pointing out that even in the prophets, God makes clear that if there's repentance, there is the possibility of reversal. Think of Jonah. Jonah's only message to Nineveh is what? 40 days and then comes judgment. But there's true and full corporate contrition for sin and they're spared. That's what makes Jonah so mad. I think it's in Isaiah or Ezekiel where God says that. If, if a man turns away from his sin, I'm not willing that any should perish all but it's not here. That's not where it is. God's word is appropriately final because God's judgment is perfect. There's no turning away from this. There's no repentance from this. There's no regret here. Verse 30, then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Once again, it sounds, the language is right, but the heart, why does he confess here? He says, just, okay, I've done that, but come and honor me before the people. Don't tell anybody. Let me hold the facade. He doesn't want his sin to be public. He wants to be known as a good king. And then I think the most damning evidence of all of Saul's heart is the pronouns here. He says, honor me before the elders of my people. And he says that I may bow before the Lord, your God. Do you see that? What is reigning in Saul's heart even now? His reputation with my people. He's he's really ideally got both of these backwards. 
This is God's people, Israel. He's only been made a shepherd, a steward, a minister of these things. And it should be the Lord, his God, but he claims total distance here. And it's probably an honest assessment. He doesn't have a real relationship with God. He's just been going through the motions. So verse 31, Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. I have no comment on that. I don't know what to do with it. Samuel was going to leave. Saul convinces him to stay. At the very least, it shows how much Samuel cares for Saul. Is it a misstep? I don't know. Should he have gone home and held the line? I don't know. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Here's another thing. Here's another reason why we know that Saul's repentance wasn't true. He doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't set it right. Now that he knows the judgment is in place, he just walks away. Years ago, I was working with a small Bible college and we had a, uh, we had a case of discipline where we were gonna have to send a student home. And it had been a relatively long process. That was not something we did lightly. And so this was after some behavior had been addressed and a contract of behavior had been laid out and an agreement had, had been made between both parties that the contract would be kept and the contract wasn't kept. And so we laid this out. We sent him, to, sent him to pack his bags. And it was rough. And he asked, you know, is it too late to fix things? And we said, yeah, it's too late to fix things. You know, we, we've found that God always honors our keeping of the process. And so we're going to keep it. And to his credit, he started to set things right. While he was packing his bags, he started to address the problems that we're having and dealt with them. The president of our school, he saw that and he granted him pardon. And we came before him and we said, do we think this is a good idea coming forward? And he said, here's how I see it. He says, it's my prerogative as president to show grace. You guys did everything right. The judgment was all there. But the thing is, when the punishment was guaranteed, he still did the right thing. That's a contrite heart. And here Saul just goes, well, it's not worth doing now. And so he leaves an elderly man to kill a king. And so notice what happens here. Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, a prophet wants to meet with me? Well, I guess my safety is assured. And then it says in verse 33, and Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Notice there is a statement of justice. In the same way you have done, let it be done to you, right? As you have killed so many children, let your mother also be childless. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now it may be that that language is supposed to be somewhat sacrificial in nature, because it could have just said it killed him, right? Why hacked him to pieces before the Lord? It may be that it's being compared here to a sacrifice, because remember, obedience is better than sacrifice. It also may just be speaking of how awkward and difficult this was, because once again, it's not a normal thing to say. It reminds me of the scene in the, um, the first James Bond film in the reboot, where he has his first assassination, and it's all difficult, and he's fighting with a guy, and it takes a lot of time. This does not speak of a professional killing. Right? But either way, it's Samuel who does what Saul was supposed to do. 
not Saul. Verse 34, then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house in Gibeah of Saul. It's only 10 miles apart, but notice what it says in closing here, verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. And so one of the ways that he loses his position is he loses the voice of God. This is going to be a significantly difficult thing to Saul, and sometimes it's going to face him to look for direction in other places, like the witch at Endor. But this is the end of God speaking to Saul. But it says here that Samuel grieved over Saul. The rest of his life, he just feels so bad about where Saul is, about what Saul has done, about what his life has amounted to. His heart is broken over this and then finishes, finishes here by repeating what it said earlier. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. If that regret means anything, it means that God was pained, doesn't it? He was grieved by Saul's behavior. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we can feel good about Samuel's heart because it looks like God's. Sometimes people talk as if Samuel or if Saul was just the fall guy in this whole thing. That God had a plan and so he just set Saul up to fail and then pushed him off a cliff and dusted his hands so he could do what he wanted to do. That's not how this story ends. This story ends with a God who is grieved by the sinful choices of Saul. By his regular and consistent unbelief and disobedience. And Samuel reflects that. Samuel may hack Agag to pieces before the Lord and speak of justice. But for Saul, he grieves. His heart is broken. Let's pray. Father, in our life, we have a hard time juxtaposing your hatred of sin and your love for those who sin against you. And because of that, Lord, we have a tendency to fall on one side or the other to belittle sin by not dealing seriously with it or by aggressively dealing with it in a way that has no sense of compassion that doesn't match your well-roundedness of character of being a God of mercy and justice a God of love and holiness and all of us like Saul Lord you have given a calling you have set a road before us you have given us a place and a position and called us to obey. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us from just going through the motions of just playing religion to keep God off our back or to make God do our will, but that we would recognize, like Ecclesiastes calls us to recognize, that you are God in heaven and we're merely human beings on earth. And so let us be few in our words. Let us not make vows rashly. Let's listen instead of speak, and let's obey instead of seeking to command the God of the universe. We ask, Lord, that you would help us as we go from here in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.